Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Vicki Tatko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 32 and 33. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and join Vicki as she shares truths from God's Word. Welcome to BSF. My name is Vicki. We are going to be studying Genesis 32 and 33 tonight. I will pray and we'll dig right in. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you pursue your people, you love us, and you want us to see you as you are. Please open our ears and soften our hearts so that everyone within the sound of my voice including myself, Lord, would be transformed by your love, that we would love you more, that we would be willing to serve you more and walk down hard roads for the glory of Jesus Christ uh, after after studying this passage more than we are even right now. We pray that he will be glorified in our whole lives, including these minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, two nights ago, it rained buckets and buckets. So, when I found myself hiking yesterday with a couple of friends, I wasn't surprised that the trail was muddy. I just didn't think that it would be that muddy. And I was ill-prepared. I was the only one in tennis shoes. And if you've been in that situation where you're walking down a muddy path, you can guess what I probably did to look ahead and to try to find the driest way through that ravine, trying to uh, walk on the trail with a gravel ridge, be able to hold onto a branch here or jump over the puddle there. Uh, we, when we're looking ahead in those sorts of places, we assess the possibility and just naturally choose the most sure path. We do this a lot in life when we face situations uh, in work, in home play- situations, or Uh, in ministry, what is the safe path ahead? What's the sure way forward? And uh, But our eyes often trick us. What our eyes look for? It's the path of at least with the least risk of endangering us. And but we think about endangering in the way that uh, it's related to exactly what we fear. What you and I fear defines what we perceive as safe. Corey Ten Boom was a well-known Christian who helped Jews escape the Nazis in Netherlands, and she's quoted as saying, the safest place is in the center of God's will. God's will is our hiding place. In that time when she was risking her life, uh, Corey lost her father and lost her sister. She suffered terribly. She saw many other people following God and suffering terribly. What was safe about that? People who feel God is calling them to missions, uh, maybe overseas in a hostile country uh, or a country hostile to Christianity, or maybe even like an inner city missions. Those people are often asked as they talk with their friends and neighbors, is that, is that really safe? Um, is it safe? Well, in what respect? Of course, it's not safe. 
but safety is really about what you fear. If what you fear is physical discomfort, poverty, a lack of plumbing or hostility, if you fear rejection or persecution for being a Christian, if you fear losing your life, if you fear those things, then your safe choices are going to reflect that. You will choose things that hopefully keep you away from the things that you fear. But if you believe what Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 to 38, uh, you will make different choices. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus has said, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be shamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you and I fear that, if we fear of forfeiting our soul, if we fear the Son of Man being ashamed of us, then our eyes will seek a different path, one that will definitely not look safe to other people who are more concerned with other things and other fears. I think that as we read tonight Genesis 32 and 33, we can learn in God's economy, the safest path necessarily leads through the most rugged terrain. We will feel like we are losing our lives for the sake of Christ. But that, dear friends, when we are trusting in Christ, is the safest path. That is God's loving loving guidance. The Israelites in the desert surely wondered why God was leading them through so many trials and tribulations in the desert. And if you are a follower of Christ, you may have wondered why God seems to lead you not away from trouble, but toward it. God is doing bigger things with you, with me, with his church, with the world, and he loves us too much to let us always feel comfortable and be without trouble. God is committed to sanctifying his people to make us holy his through and through, just as he has declared through the covenant of Jesus Christ that we belong to him. God is similarly, we will see, or like we can see that 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 same, that original commitment, he's committed to Jacob. In our passage, Jacob is coming home to the land of Canaan. Why? God specifically told him to in Genesis 31.3. But this, in one sense, is a dangerous path. We saw last week the danger of Uncle Laban coming behind him. Uh, we Now we will see this week the danger of Jacob's brother Esau ahead of him. And going into the next week and beyond, we will see that there is danger even in even when Jacob is back in the land that God had called him to go to. And yet this path that Jacob is on is the path of greatest safety with respect to the right fears, because it is God's will for Jacob and the safest place to be is in the will of God. God had not called Jacob to walk a safe and smooth road. God had called Jacob to walk the rugged terrain of the simultaneously dangerous and safe road. That is the path that God has called all Christians to walk. Why? Because God will deliver his people inside from the things we fear inappropriately outside of us, or like 
in us, but also external fears. And in doing that, only He will get the glory. So that is where we're going tonight, and we'll cover our passage 32 and 33 in two sections. We will see Jacob's mixture of fear and faith in Genesis 32, and we will see God's deliverance in Genesis 33. So open your Bibles. If they're not already open, we are going to start right up with Genesis 32. And we see in these uh, first two verses, there's uh, an enigmatic meeting. Uh, reading in verse 32, 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Now that happened, remember when Jacob was leaving the land, the angels of God, he saw them in a dream as he was leaving Bethel. Now, Jacob is not in the land yet, but he is coming um, into the land. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Manahahim. Um, what did God send the angels or the messengers to do? The word in Hebrew uh, that's that we as often is translated angel is also the same word that would, is translated messenger or could be translated messenger. Uh, why? What message or purpose did God send those angels? It's not clear. God knew what was ahead for Jacob, and we know that God is a proactive God. He acts proactively to support, prepare, and even direct him. <clears throat> direct him. Um, <clears throat> so here, just to think about the geography, Jacob has come down. He has been in the hills of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. Um, this place, Mahanaim, is probably in that area. He will be crossing the Jabbok River, which is running east to west. Uh, so here we are, and Esau's way down to the south. How did Jacob even know that Esau was no longer in the land of Canaan? It seems that God is giving him uh, that knowledge or perhaps that direction. Um, <clears throat> we will come back to this later at the very end because um, there's another question. The bigger and larger question is if Esau was not in Canaan, why contact Esau at all? Why awaken that problem, that 20-year-old uh, threat? <clears throat> that was something that Jacob theoretically didn't have to do, and yet he did that. And so we see that in the next uh, <clears throat> three verse, or four verses, verses 3 to 6, that Jacob sends messengers to his brother Esau. And the narrator tells us Jacob's relayed message. It's a message of humility and a message of prosperity. So he, first starting in verse four, um, Jacob instructs the messengers, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So it suggests that, though it's not overt, it suggests that Jacob would be sending gifts from this from the prosperity that he had, but it also there's the suggestion that Jacob is going to come to Esau per, personally. Now this again is a geography problem. Esau is not in Canaan, and Jacob told God told Jacob to go to Canaan. So Jacob is seems to be going out of his way. And we come to Esau's reply, 
which is evidently not with words, but with action. And so in verse six, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So is this a welcome party? Evidently, Jacob does not take it that way. So we see for the rest of the chapter, actually, we are seeing Jacob's reaction to the news of Esau's coming. His core response was terror. We can see that in verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The word Hebrew word for distress is like is related to binding. He was it seems that he was almost paralyzed by that fear or tied into knots. And Jacob is going to respond to that fear in, in, uh, in four ways, the um, five. We'll, we'll get to that. So uh, the first thing that he does, and starting in verse 7b, he divides the people in his, his family and his animals into two camps. Um, verse 8 says why, because what he was thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. It seems that uh, Jacob is afraid, and in his fear, it's perhaps it seems like God, he has forgotten God's promises to him. Fear often does that. Uh, it can We forget who God is, we forget who we are, we forget his word, but also fear can drive us toward God in desperation that we cling to him, and that is what, thankfully, we see with Jacob in the sec- his second response, Jacob turning to God in prayer. This prayer, there's many things that you and I could learn from it. I encourage you to study it and come back to it when you are in a hard and scary place. Um, we can see, starting in verse 9, he's praying out of his emotion. O is not flowery Bible language, as it's been translated here. It suggests that God is not, or Jacob is not hiding his emotions from God. And he prayed to God as a person. Uh, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Uh, so he's Jacob is remembering God and naming it. You are a covenant-making God. You made a covenant with Abraham. You made a covenant with my father Isaac. And you've made a covenant with me. Uh, and, and so he's he's invoking that. Now, when you and I pray as Christians, we also pray through a covenant. We pray through the covenant secured in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jacob went and talked about um, uh, why he was here, and he remembers God's word, uh, said that, and um, with the implication is, you told me to do this, Lord. You've given me promises. I'm obeying them, but now I'm in trouble. And that's something for us to know. Obeying God does not necessarily lead us away from trouble it will the safest path of which is the path of obedience leads us toward trouble um and we see then in verse 10 jacob's playing with praying with humility and gratitude um uh i am not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant for with only my staff i crossed this jordan and now i have become two camps Jacob knows, even though we saw last chapter in 31, he defended all of his hard work and his selflessness to his uncle Laban. Jacob knows that he has not deserved or earned the amazing ways that God had been so generous to him. And then we see Jacob name his specific problem and make a 
specific request. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob, in naming his specific problem, uh, gives establishes a specific way that Jacob can see God's deliverance. Um, naming is part of, part of the Christian life is learning to name things. And when we name our needs specifically, and we don't suppress our emotion, and we go, we name specifically what we are asking boldly in faith that God would do for us, specific prayers lead to specific answers. And when you and I pray specifically, we can watch and praise God for his answers. How will you know if God answers a vague prayer? Bless me or make me a better Christian. Those prayers are too vague. Our eyes cannot see that. But part of the safest path that we're following down on this dangerous way is for us to learn how to turn to God and learn just how faithful he is. And specific prayer plays an integral part of that. So we see as Jacob claims God's promises to him, um, he's believing he's not, he's also struggling with unbelief. We see that mixture of fear and faith, um, and yet the Lord does not abandon him, right? So take courage, be encouraged by that. Um, don't wait until the crisis to find God's character and promises. Crisis will come in your life. Find them now. What crisis, burden, or situation do you need to take to God? And can you think of a promise or an aspect of God's character that speaks in direct contrast to your fear or present problem? After praying, we see in verse 13, Jacob's third response to Esau's coming, he is sending gifts ahead of him in waves to pacify pacify Esau. So he sends about 580-ish animals. They, um, he's, It's like he's trying to buy time and have... Esau's anger simmer down. Um, prayer changes the prayer. So Jacob does seem more calm. Is this plan God's wisdom given to Jacob? I think yes. And I think we will see that in a specific reason at the end of the chapter, um, or at the end of chapter 33. But did Jacob still f- feel afraid? Probably. Being brave or courageous does not mean an absence of fear. It means walking slowly toward the problem. And so, once the gifts were dispatched, then we see Jacob's fourth response, starting in verse 22. He starts advancing his own family toward the problem. Now, let's think about this again with the geography. So, Jacob is on the east side of the Jordan, and he's coming down in the hills of Gilead. And he, in the middle of the or in the night, it seems like, he is verse, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So he's taking them down and across the river. And that is a significant act of faith. Because if an army is coming up, four hundred guys are coming up, guess what? If you have a river behind you, that is going to seal off possible avenues of retreat. Um, And so, I suggest to you, Jacob was trusting God, but then we see him waver. It seems that Jacob's fear bound himself. Could he himself get across that river? Um, And I, that's where I think God met him in that paralyzing fear, um, starting with verse 
24. Um, and sometimes we are. We're paralyzed by fear, and we just cannot move forward in faith. But the gospel tells us God loves rescuing paralyzed, helpless people. That's part of his fundamental character. He is a rescuer and a deliverer. And so, as we are going into this um, this dark time for him, uh, Jacob in verse 24, we see Jacob was left alone, presumably on the north bank of the Jabbok River. And then all of a sudden, you know, as it's dark and it's quiet, what is Jacob thinking? We're not told about that. Um, but it's suddenly in that darkness, Jacob was alone and not alone. And there's an encounter that comes out of nowhere. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Who is that man? Um, the struggle, it's very, again, it's very mysterious and enigmatic. And even in the, the narration, especially in the Hebrew, it's, it's very hard to figure out who is doing what. Um, it's a very confusing uh aspect, and I suggest that the narrator is letting us feel a part of how Jacob must have felt. Who is this man? Um, And the struggle lasted all night. It must have been physically exhausting, and yet neither Jacob nor the man he was wrestling with yielded. And so, the, the core question is, who is this man, and why is he wrestling Jacob? And so, we have four clues as to his identity. We see first that in verse uh, 25, Jacob's opponent used supernatural strength to humble him. With a single touch, he dislocated Jacob's hip. And we find out later, this is a permanent uh, injury that he has for his whole life. Jacob, we see in the second thing, uh, the second clue we have is that Jacob wanted blessing. In verse 26, um, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In Genesis, we have seen blessing comes from God. Jacob understood that this man somehow had the authority to bestow God's blessing. And number th- our third clue, we see that Jacob had the right to re I'm sorry, the man had the right to rename Jacob, to assign him a new identity and shape the path of him and his descendants forever. And so um verse 27, and he said to him, "What is your name?" And he said, "Jacob." And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So this man, those words are not only assigning Jacob a new identity where he had been a supplanter, um, but now the man is saying, he's interpreting what's going on. You've striven with men, and we've seen that throughout the story of, of Jacob, right, from the, his very conception. But now, how is he striven with God? So, here seems to be, is part of this wrestling, is him uh, striving with God. Um, that's what Israel, that word means. Uh, it has, it can be interpreted different ways. He struggles with God. God strives, God rules, all those things um, reflect this new identity of this man and the nation that would come from him. Um, And he is leaving, in a sense, his old life, his old supplanter ways, and God is calling him to a new identity. And so our fourth and final clue that we have for this man is that the man had the right, it seems, to withhold his own name. He had already given Jacob enough evidence of his identity and uh, in verse 29. Why is it that you ask my name? And instead of 
giving him a name, he blessed him. Um, and then Jacob, we see, comes to the answer. Who is this man? Uh, in, in some mysterious way, this man is God. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, verse 30, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And so the sun rises in verse 31 and uh, on a new man, a limping man, but he has seen God. And so the question is, um, <clears throat> did Jacob prevail? This encounter would mark Jacob for the rest of his life. So yes and no. When we wrestle with God... God will not let us win in the sense that we think we're going to vanquish God. We will not dazzle God with our arguments. We cannot overpower him with the sheer force of our plans to live our lives as we please. So there is a sense that Jacob, the striving wrestling, the striving Jacob did not prevail. But did Jacob prevail? Yes. It was not by strength. He received a new and better identity and he desired the better part. God's blessing and received it. Uh, because God is gracious, weakness, not strength, is the path of winning. And so we see that Jacob prevailed. He limped forward. He was physically humbled, but he was spiritually uh, strengthened. So I think that brings to our principle for chapter 32, or a principle we can learn, is that God loves us enough to bring us to the end of ourselves. God loves us enough to bring us to the end of ourselves. When I was in my early 20s, I uh, was trained to lift weights in a way to build muscle strength. And the idea was to... Work a, I know there are various ways that people can work out with, with weight training, but this particular way, uh, the idea you would work a particular set of muscles doing a particular uh, movement, military press or you know adduction, abduction, or uh, squats, you're going to do that so that in, in one set, you could only perform 8 to 15 repetitions. So that would mean that you needed to dial in the exact right weight. Uh, if it was too light, you could do way more than that. And that was not going to be building strength on the pace that uh, was this particular uh, system uh, advocated. And if you would have a less, you know, a lot greater weight, you could maybe lift it once, but you wouldn't be able to lift it eight times and it would probably be too hard, you wouldn't, you would overcome your, your muscles too quickly and maybe degrade your form. So you wanted that ideal eight, eight repetitions to 15 repetitions before you were maxed out and you couldn't actually do another one. Um, and so week by week, you would, you, you know, you would progress as you get stronger, your weight goes up so that you're always staying between that eight and 15 um, reps. And so after I would go and work out, I would go to the cafeteria for dinner, which was, um, it was on a college campus. And, you know, I walked down uh, a ways. But when I, I could barely pick up my tray, it was, I was so aware of what the exercise had cost me. And the next morning, I was usually sore. I, it wouldn't keep me in bed, but it was something with me. I had 
every single time I lift my leg or move my arm. Um, but I grew stronger in that process. Um, God loves us enough to bring us to the end of ourselves where we cannot do any more reps. We cannot bear any more weight, but it is perfectly and lovingly crafted so that God has put just the right stress, just the right weight, just the right trouble. God will, um, contrary to what people say, God absolutely will give you more than you can handle. Because God is not about teaching us our own sufficiency. He wants us to see we are not self-sufficient. We cannot handle life's problems without Him. We need Him intimately every day, every moment. And when He shows us that, it means that He loves us. When He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can't do anything and we're just, we are paralyzed or we're stretched. He is growing us stronger and stronger in Him because strength is actually weakness that is directed toward trusting the Lord. Um, this struggle and wrestling with God is part of the redemptive process. <clears throat> but God's love is is the kind of love that will not let His people go. He doesn't desire our subjugation that he's suppressing us, but rather our willing submission that we might, and even though it's hard for our minds to believe, that is the place of true flourishing. How has God shown you that you are not self-sufficient? How has he brought you to the end of yourself, given you more than you could possibly handle? How has he pushed into your greatest fears or pushed into your your ideas about what's safe? Um, how have you responded May we, by His grace, hold on to God in the discomfort and dangerous places and let Him change us and bless us. May He never, never let us go, even though His safest path involves suffering. Because in God's economy, the safest path necessarily leads through the most rugged and difficult terrain. We will feel like we are losing our lives for the sake of Christ. But that, dear friends, is the safest path. That is God's loving guidance. Okay, our last section in chapter 33, we're going to see God's deliverance. Uh, Faith will prevail. God, Jacob will see God deliver him from the danger of Esau. So we're going to move through this pretty quickly. There are a lot of details, but um, we see in the first three verses, Jacob sees Esau. Um, He's arranging his family, and he bows to him. So let's just read those first three verses. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He then... He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. And so Jacob didn't stay in the rear this time like he did the night before, but he limped out in front. His heart may have still had some fear, but his steps were moving toward the problem courageously. And he appears as humble humble and deferential to Esau as possible. Um, With Esau, there we are at the climax. This is the moment of peak intensity. Jacob is bowed before Esau and his men. Um, What is Esau going to do? And we see a surprise. Verse 4, Esau runs and embraces him, and they weep together. 
For Esau to run was undignified. For him to embrace and kiss Jacob was beyond unexpected. These are brothers who had never gotten along their whole entire lives. And yet, to see each other and not just get a little moist-eyed and teary, but to weep, this was a big deal. God was at work. Did Jacob believe, go into this moment thinking God would deliver him? It seems like it. Uh, Did Jacob think it would play out like this? I doubt it. (laughs) But there was no, once it happened, there was no neon sign or no flash of lightning, but Jacob recognized this was the God's work. It was not just Esau having a change of heart or but God was behind it. Esau's heart was changed because God had protected Jacob. And that's what I think Jacob means when he says to Esau, um, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Um, God trains his people to recognize his handiwork. Then we go, we see more about their reunion. It's sort of a formal affair, verses um, five and seven. Now we get to the point This is a crux in verses 8 to 11. Esau's asking about the gifts. He initially refuses, but Jacob insists. Okay, so here's, uh, here's, I think, what we can't miss and what informs the whole passage. Why did God send, why did Jacob send this down to, he wasn't even going to Canaan. I mean, Canaan was over here. Why is he going to Seir? Um, There was a wrong. Jacob had wronged Esau, and this was Jacob making restitution. So culturally, in this exchange, Jacob Esau did not offer gifts in exchange. He is indicated that he accepted the gifts as payment for wrongs done to him. So Jacob makes restitution for the wrongs he had done to Esau. Were Jacob's motives perfectly pure? Probably not. But it was in line with God's moral righteous character for God's servant Jacob to offer restitution for wrong his brother. Um, And in verse 11, when he says, I have all I need, Jacob is a changed man. He's not perfect, but he's changed. The gospel gives us freedom to be generous and make amends to do what is right, because we can trust that God will care for us when we uh, have our life uh, cooperate with God to have our life marked by God's character and God's righteousness. Um, and and when we are eager to show our humility before those um, whom we have wronged or who have been our enemies. We see then in um, the verses 12 to 15, Esau offers to travel with Jacob. Jacob's declining. Jacob does see, this is curious, and I I don't, we don't know necessarily what's going on. Jacob seems to indicate he would come to Seir in the south, but God had called Jacob to go to Canaan, not to Seir. Jacob had no business going on another path than what God had laid out for him. And um, fortunately, we see that uh, Jacob does renege on his words and he goes the Godward direction, not um, down to Seir. He does seem shrewdly cautious of Esau's offer of an armed guard. And then in verse 16 to 17, we see Esau and Jacob part amicably, but apparently permanently, just as God had told Rebekah when they were, these two boys were in her womb. These were two nations that would be separated. And so then we see these last uh, these last three verses, eighteen to twenty, um, are are really huge. Even though the that happened very fast, um, Jacob enters Canaan. He temporarily 
stays at Succoth to the east of the Jordan River, and then he crosses over, and uh, Sychar or Shechem is, is up here, so it's, it's up a little bit on the ridge. And so um, he goes into the land. The key is verse 18, I think. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Um, that word in Hebrew that's been translated safely is a word related to shalom. It's shalem, um, and it means peace and um, completeness, fullness. And this is the first time in 20 years where Jacob doesn't need to be hampered by guilt or looking over his shoulder. And God in his generosity is protecting Jacob's family, Israel, from an attack or retaliation by Esau. And Jacob responds to this. He sees what God has done for him. And so the very first act that he um, he camped before the city, he um, buys a, a piece of land, which I think is symbolic that he's he's saying this is this is a down payment of you know where he's going to pitch his tent. This is the land that God has for him. And then um, his final act here in this chapter is an act of worship. Um, so I think the one of the principles that we can learn from this division is that the safest path will showcase God's deliverance. The safest path showcases God's deliverance. It also involves our dependence and cooperation and leads to his peace. But God's deliverance is the key. This is the lesson of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will come and rescue his people. He's going to do what we can absolutely not do for ourselves. So we should trust him. And he does it in such a way that his hand and work are unmistakable, that we might know him more fully, that he would get the glory. So we should trust him. And in doing that, God confronts our fears and shows them to be nothing compared to his power and glory. We should trust him to walk the path of that he lays before us. It is a hard, it is a hard path. It is not what other people in this world would think is a safe path. And yet, the path of obedience to follow God um, is the path of His deliverance and ultimately a life that will glorify Him. Um, God offers you and me His deliverance. Do you see your need for that? Our first and greatest need is our spiritual need. We are dead in our sins, and God's one and only provision for that is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the as God's deliverance from the guilt and uh, and brokenness? Um, and also, God gives us deliverance from the power of sin once we are included in Christ by grace through faith. Um, what path are you on? And in what respects is it safe? What fears does it push into? Even the the world's like safest, easiest path, we can see if we have the view of what Jesus was talking about in Mark eight, which has the long view that the the easy road is not a safe road. Um, in what ways does the path you're on cooperate with God's larger purposes for you in this world? Is it a path of physical and emotional comfort, of self-sufficiency, of personal glory? Or is it the simultaneously safe and dangerous path that of God sanctifying you to be more and more um, like the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for pursuing us, for loving us, for teaching us. Would you continue by your Spirit to be in our lives working and um, sanctifying us? Give us courage, Lord, to follow you. Help us to trust you where we are paralyzed. And we we pray that our lives, um, in their imperfect state now and ultimately when we are uh, with the Lord Jesus face to face, would give you glory. We pray this in the powerful name of your Son. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF podcast. Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, March 8th at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 34, 35, and 36. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.